Um, what we're going to do tonight is um, we will be uh, doing uh, some group discussion like we did, I think, in the third class or the fourth class where we broke up into groups, had discussion amongst the groups, and then we brought that discussion back to everyone. So I want you all to prepare yourself mentally for, you know, splitting into groups and doing that. I know it's a little different. Um, before we do that, we are going to read chapters 4 and chapter 5. I was trying to count how many times we've read the different chapters by my count. Um, and 4 and 5 definitely get the least amount of love because you spend, you spend more time in the beginning of the book for different reasons. Uh, and so uh, before we kind of started the first of our two review classes, we're going to do this review tonight on the book. And then I'll do another review next week where we'll wrap things up a little bit differently. Um, but I wanted to give uh, chapters four and chapter five uh, at least one more read uh, as a part of that. So we'll, we'll read and then we'll, we'll have some more discussion. We'll break into groups. So beginning in chapter four of James, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives us more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin." Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person when he does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those who blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Before we break up in the groups, just one note that, that I think is interesting about the book is um, there's this concept called an inclusio. I don't know exactly what that means, frankly, but the way I've heard Barry explain it is there's a, you know, you kind of bookend. You start and then there's some stuff in the middle, and then that concept is mentioned again. Well, really, the book of James does that. If you look in the first, call it five verses to seven verses of chapter one, there's a bunch of discussion about concern about their suffering and if they'll remain steadfast in that. And then when you go to the end of the book, especially, especially if you consider in chapter five, that maybe verses like 13 through 20 are like a, like a final greetings or almost like a postscript. If you think about the book that way, especially verses 7 through 12 
really, they mirror almost exactly in lots of ways the, the concepts mentioned at the beginning of the book. There's concepts of suffering, their need to steadfast, be steadfast, um, that they have to establish their hearts. Um, and um, then that ends with verse 12 with a but above, above all statement, which interestingly, the, the way we've broken up the chapters, chapter one kind of ends with an above all, that pure and undefiled religion. It's kind of like an above all statement. Well, here, uh, this, what I kind of think is the end of chapter five before this postscript, uh, there's this above all statement, and he then says, above all, do this thing, which interestingly, we haven't really mentioned the the, in the earlier part of the book. So one of, the, one of the questions we'll talk about tonight that I want folks to discuss is, if he's saying that's above all, like, how do, you, how do you make that above all comment here at the end of chapter five really fit with the rest of the book if, if that's really above all? I think it's actually um, pretty important. All right, so I mentioned we're going to break into groups. Um, I think for groups... Let me, I'll think about that for a second. Um, Jerry has worksheets. If you'll pass that out, I bet Michael will help you kind of split those up. I printed 50. Hopefully, I think that's going to be enough. Um, so for groups, I would like it if we split into, I think, four groups. So Danny and Danny, Kathy, Leslie, y'all's group, will y'all be the front of that group? So y'all back to the, the wall back there. Y'all will all be one group. Karen's row and forward. This will be one group, so these three pews right here. Um, and then we'll, we'll uh, mirror that. So uh, Jerry, Jerry and Barry up through these ladies here. And then, um, I don't know, you guys, y'all, this is like the most populated pew in the group. Um, y'all go forward. I don't mean that in a problematic way. Um, and then this group right here, y'all all be one group. Um, so what I want to do is, uh, we'll do this in two sections. There's four questions. Ideally, um, what your groups will do, um, talk about the first two questions. And if you want to like nominate someone to take notes and speak for the group, that's great. My goal is not to have just one person from each group speak. So if you want to do that to create some structure, that's fine. But, but ideally, we'll have more than one person from each group uh, speaking. So... Um, if you're not close to people, if you can't hear them, get up and move, um, if you could. So, the first question y'all should spend about five minutes on is, uh, as we studied James, it's very clear the audience is struggling with many things. Um, name at least five things you see the audience struggling with. By the way, I came up with five because I was able to come up with four, and I'm hoping you guys bring the fifth that I, I didn't think of. Um, and then second... How does the idea of wisdom play into the message of the book? And that answer may differ based on what you think the message of the, the book is. So you might have to answer that. It's kind of like a two-part question, potentially, for, for you to consider. So we'll spend about 10 minutes, y'all, discussing those two. And then we'll come back and have some, some conversation with the whole group. Newton, will you turn my mic down wherever you are? Just, just, just do the first two questions right now, uh, discussing with your group. chapter one, clear, at least in my opinion, that they're struggling with all kinds of stuff. So interested, what are the things that y'all saw them struggling with? 
What'd you say? All right, worldliness, okay. Shout another one out, somebody. All right, so they're struggling with favoritism. I think I heard some people referring to that as maybe partiality. What else? Issues of the tongue, like controlling their tongue. Yep. Yeah, so I think that's a great example of a getting more specific than just saying problems with their tongue. They're struggling with how they speak to each other. And when you say that, Brian, give, give some more detail than that. They're struggling with lack of faith. How does that show up in the book? Yeah. And so when we've talked about that, when I've talked about that in class, I've sometimes referred to that as the difference between active faith, and the term I use, which may sound silly, is mental assent. I, I come to believe something theoretically, almost like philosophy. Like you go to any theology college in the, in the world and you'll find people who are Bible scholars but lack faith. They have knowledge, potentially. They have some mental belief in, in God, but their active faith is, is completely missing. There is a very distinct difference in the book between people that essentially believe that God exists, and that belief then drives them to action. What else? Chip? Yeah, I, I similarly said something about faith being such an overriding principle throughout the book, and they have ways that we can test whether or not it's genuine. And one of the you're saying is that it, I don't, uh, it has to produce life or lifestyle changes. Well, it's not changing faith. It's a lifestyle change of action, like you just said. Yeah. Or obedience, whatever word fits in your, in your mind. Yep, it has to produce lifestyle changes. I like, like that. What else? Any others? to trust God. So they're struggling with how they trust God? Yeah. Emily, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, especially trusting him to take care of them. They're trying to manipulate and control the situation, control situations themselves instead of walking in trust. Yes. Emily, what were you saying? Greed. Greed? And how do you, how do you see greed in the book? Yeah, I think the concept of greed is, is interesting because my personal reading of chapter 5, that first little section in chapter 5, that's a scathing review of the rich people, I think that that is almost, um, I don't really think that that's addressed to Christians. That's my, that's my theory. I could be wrong. Barry may tell me afterwards I'm wrong. Um, I think it's, this is almost like prophecy against them, like you'd see in some of the prophetic books. Um, but then the concept of just because you aren't rich, that doesn't mean you aren't greedy. It doesn't mean you don't idolize money. 
those two things can be, can, you can be poor and greedy. You can be rich and not greedy. Like those things don't all have to be the same uh, at the same time. Uh, Let's talk about number two. How does wisdom play into the message of the book? Yeah, so, the, so some of that leads to what do you believe the message of the book is. At minimum, it's that they, they need to get through trials. And so if they would lean on wisdom from God, they would be more successful in making it through their trials. How else does wisdom play into the book? Yeah, so there's two different types of wisdom. You especially see this, uh, I think, towards the end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. Concept of earthly wisdom versus spiritual uh, or heavenly wisdom, uh, which is echoed in chapter 1, right? Um, And do you want that? And if so, you need to ask for it. How else does it play into the message of the book? Shane? Yes, and that righteousness impacts others. There's a comment over here that's not being made. Well, the comment that was made over here about that. <laughs> not that I was over there. Heaven, heavenly wisdom actually is not just restricted to the person that is benefiting. It actually impacts those that are around that person. So that harvest of righteousness, that is not restricted to a single person. It actually Yes, so if you look at the end of chapter 3, in case you couldn't hear the comment, um, there's a discussion of earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. And that section, it's almost like like a fruit of the Spirit from Galatians sort of section in verse 16 or 17. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And all of that leads to something. It leads to a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. Um, to, to, to me, there is not a stronger advocation for where you choose to worship and who you choose to worship with than the comment that was just made. That the wisdom that we're seeking to attain to and that we're seeking to be around Spiritual wisdom creates a harvest of righteousness. So if we can be around people who plant that seed in peace, we can be part of reaping that with one another. And that is how a community of believers, a a group of people that worship together, can benefit one another and our growth um, in that spiritual wisdom. Because we get to sow together and then we get to reap together that harvest of righteousness that comes from wisdom. Anything else on wisdom? Yes, ma'am. I have one thought on that. You were talking about not many of you should become teachers. Maybe they weren't wise enough. Okay. So maybe they aren't wise enough to become teachers. Uh, I hadn't considered that. One that no one's mentioned that, that I thought about was 
towards the end of chapter 1, or maybe the middle of chapter 1, where the author discusses, discusses where suffering comes from. Does this right after he told them to ask for wisdom. I, I think that having spiritual wisdom helps us to understand the effects of sin on the world, and that specifically, an effect of sin on the world is suffering. God doesn't send suffering to us, at least not through sin. Um, he does not. But we can, with wisdom, we can properly understand the sources of suffering and not blame God when we're tempted. Um, because that, that will prevent us from being steadfast. If, if we're sinning, that leads to suffering, and then we blame God for that. Well, we're going to abandon the Father, but not because He did something, but because we did something. And having true wisdom will help us appropriately attach that suffering where it, where it should be placed. All right, let's look at, if you could in your groups, look at uh, number three and number four. I'm going to give you a little bit less time uh, this time. I'm also going to caution you. The fourth question is pretty, you're going to have to, you might not be comfortable answering that. I'm going to ask it to you anyway, and I hope that we'll talk about it uh, together. So let's take five or six minutes, and y'all look at uh, number three and number four. All right. Newton, would you turn my mic up? All right. So this concept of let your let yes be yes. So ends this book and says, but above all, do this. So that would indicate that it's rather pivotal to the message of the book. So why? Like, what, is your, what are your thoughts on how does this concept either fit in with the overall message of the book, explain it? Why is it important? I think it, it can be applied chapter 2 and 3, because chapter 2 was talking about how you say to the rich person, you sit here, to the poor person, you sit here. Then he says, you say to your brother, be more filled about giving the things that they need. And then chapter 3 is all about paying time. So lecture yes, yes, to be applied to those. Okay. All right. Sherry, what were you going to say? Yeah, that cross-reference into Matthew is where Jesus, I believe, where Jesus chastises essentially the leaders of the Jews, you may say Pharisees, because they basically don't keep their word. They come up with all these reasons to basically say, well, I don't have to do what I said because I didn't swear on something. And so they have to, they have to swear on something that's really important so that people will actually believe what they, what they say they're going to do. So essentially... Jesus condemns them for their, they're so dishonest that no one can trust them unless they swear on their mother's grave or something like that. Evan. So along that line, um, I have a footnote here. I don't know if anybody else noticed this or anyone's Bible also has this. It says, some manuscripts, instead of falling to judgment, it says fall into hypocrisy. Oh, okay. It gives it kind of a whole new perspective looking at it. Where, if you look back through the book, 
the, the Jews or the Christians he's writing this to, the Jewish Christians he's writing this to, um, they, in certain ways, they want to be spiritual, uh, but it seems that they only want to be spiritual insofar as the status they gain, the physical things they can read from being spiritual. And so they're doing these things only to gain earthly things instead of looking to God and serving Him because of who He is. And so there's this idea of hypocrisy there where they're not being honest with themselves and, and truly, sincerely seeking spirituality, but they're only trying to, to gain whatever earthly gain they can from their spirituality. Yeah, I really like the, I think you used the word sincere, sincerity maybe three times while you were talking. I, I think that's really important here is the discussion of the sincerity of your faith. Michael, you're going to say something? Do you want to say something? You said good things earlier. Anybody else? Yes, Sherry? I was just going to say, you don't have to go to extremes to, to prove your, and say yes. You have to deal with what God knows. You know, if your statement is true or not. He knows. So you don't have to go to extremes to prove that what you're saying is right or wrong. Because God knows. Because God yeah. Chip, what were you going to say? So above all, means I think unique mm. to the rest of what's in the book. There's something unique about this section or this verse. My opinion is, is my opinion is that how we, how our integrity is compared to what we say we believe. I'm a Christian, and if these are the things, that, according to James, that how a Christian would behave, to, to an earlier point, how our life would be changed. If we're not making those changes, are we really integrous in saying we're one thing, we're Christians, but not maybe behaving like what a Christian would look like? And the reflection, the judgment that it causes is um, one of, um, who is God? And by, by that I mean everything we do in our life is to glorify God, is to call attention to His name, is to draw people to Him. And if when we're not integrity-driven, we're not consistent, uh, if we're unreliable, untrustworthy, what does that say about God's people? And what reflection is that of God? So above all, here to me, it says, all these other things that it's solving for you when you're applying wisdom and you're acting in faith and all these things that makes your life more tolerable because you can see the joy that's beyond the immediate trial. Think about also the reflection your life is having about what it says about God. That's what I think the above all. Yeah, Michael, now you have something. That's especially true because there's so many descriptions of God in this book. Know about him being the father of life, giver of all good gifts. So he's essentially, I guess, throwing that in there to say, like, be like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think, I think that's really where where the book is headed in this summary, like this summary verse. And I think I would sum up a lot of this um, in thinking about the book. The message of the book is. Essentially, you need to be steadfast through trials, 
that will, if you're steadfast, that will produce something. Ultimately, hopefully that produces salvation. And then the book is multiple touchstones, multiple ways for you to know you got a problem. (laughs) You got a problem if your brethren come to you and say, I need help. And the only thing you have to give them is thoughts and prayers. That's that's a sign that you you might have a problem. Um, If you have faith or you say you have faith, but when it comes to doing things, you fail to actually do, you might have a problem. When it comes to um, caring for orphans or widows, if you don't help the most needy among you, you might have a problem with this steadfast thing. Um, If you are constantly stained by the world, you've spent so much time with the world and still that, that there's a stain of sin and worldliness upon you. You might have a problem. And, and all these examples about faith and then taming the tongue, this huge section about the tongue and what that means about um, whether or not you're actually faithful, this is all about illustrating, James is illustrating ways that they can know that their faith is not sincere. He never actually says like, all of you people are terrible and you're not going to make it. Like he doesn't say that. Instead, he gives these examples that they can evaluate themselves against and say, oh, okay, well, do I do that? Oh no, like I don't do that. Okay, like you might, you might not do some of these things and, and maybe that's okay, but are you not doing any of them? Well, if you lack so much integrity or sincerity of faith that when you tell someone you'll do something, they have to question it, well, that at the most fundamental level means that you are terrible at commitment to your fellow man. And if you can't even commit to your fellow man and your yes be yes, how can you commit to God and be steadfast through trials? You can't. You can't. So the way to flip this topic is you can use it as a scorecard or a, a metric to know, is it possible I'll make, make, make it through trials? And if you evaluate yourselves and say no, there's very clear action that comes from that. Because he tells us all these things that we should be doing that would illustrate if we're going to make it through trials or not. Shouldn't you view it as a checklist? Okay, well, if I take care of orphans, I take care of widows. Okay, well, I I tame my tongue. All right, I'm done. I'm going to be steadfast. But by giving us this plethora of examples, you could argue there's 15 to 20 different examples that he gives you to know if you have faith that will produce steadfastness. Well, if you evaluate yourself against that, you'll have a really, really good understanding of where you need to invest and where you need to pray for wisdom so that you can grow towards steadfastness. Thanks all for your comments.